I've been sharing with y'all how my daughter is getting ready to go to Texas A&M. And as a longhorn, I've been reading up on uh, A&M. <clears throat> and I found a story about uh, an Aggie who had been at Texas A&M for more than the normal amount of years. <laughs> that may be normal, I don't know. But the day of his graduation came, and it was a big day. In fact, as he was getting ready to walk across the stage, the entire graduating class rose and cheered because this was a historic event. This, this guy had been at A&M longer than any other Aggie ever had. And so as he's walking up to get his diploma, suddenly the registrar bursts onto the stage. And he says, stop, stop, he can't, he can't walk, he can't graduate. We just realized he never took a math class here at Texas A&M, so he can't graduate. Now, the student body, the graduating seniors all stood and yelled, let him graduate, let him walk. And the president of the university gets up, he calms the crowd, he, he calls the dean of the mathematics department over. They have this consultation right there on the platform, and they decide they're going to give an emergency exam. They're going, to, they're going to give him one math question, and if he can pass the math question, he gets to graduate. So they said, okay, what is one plus one? Now this ancient senior Aggie goes, one plus one, one plus one. He goes, two. And as soon as he says two, the entire graduating class of Aggies stand up and yell, give him another chance. <laughs> I love Aggies. I really do. <laughs> now, in the parable we're going to be looking at today in Luke 14, 15 through 24, what we're going to see is something like this happens, except that instead of having the right answer and being thought wrong, there's going to be a guy who calls out the wrong answer. And everybody else who's seated around the table thinks this guy is right. Now, as we look at Luke 14, 15 today, I want to remind you that this is a continuation of what we were looking at last week. If you were here last time, you'll recall Jesus was in the home of a Pharisee. He was, he was reclining around the table with a bunch of religious leaders. In, in fact, the guy whose home they were in, he was an archon. Luke 14, 1 said he was a ruler of the Pharisees. And in, in, in this setting, remember, they had invited Jesus as well as a man who had a disease, a disease of dropsy. And that guy was there because they wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to see, will he heal this guy on the Sabbath? And so what happened is Jesus does. He heals the man. He, he releases him from his illness. He goes away. And these guys were all mad about what Jesus had done. And you remember that Jesus dealt not just with the disease of this guy, but also with the disease of the religious leaders. Because he said, y'all have a problem problem called pride. And he told a parable that we looked at last time that uh, dealt with how they were taking the choice seats of honor at the banquet. Now, there was a bigger issue beyond even their pride because you'll recall that what Jesus ultimately said is, you're not going to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven because you've rejected me. As we continue today in Luke 14, 15, the setting is the same. He's there at the same dinner reclining around the table. And as Jesus has just said all these things to them, uh, they're feeling convicted, which is what happens uh, in Luke 14, 15, is there's a guy there that as all this is happening, he calls out 
It says, And when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, it's not that this guy is drunk. He hasn't been sitting there drinking his dinner all night. What, what happens is he's uncomfortable. And he tries to counter what Jesus is teaching. So as he says this, you can picture him sweeping his arm around the room. What he's implying, what he's saying is, oh, no, Jesus, everybody, everybody here, all these religious leaders, we're all going to be in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus does next is he moves to address this misconception because he tells another parable that we're looking at here in Luke 14, 16 through 24. I invite you to read this with me. It says, but he said to him, a certain man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I, and I need to go and look at it. Please consider me excused. And the other one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and he reported this to his master. And the head of the household became angry. And he said to his slave, go out once, at once into the street and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is, there is room. And the master said to his slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Now, in the scriptures, whenever you see a banquet or a wedding feast, oftentimes it's used as a picture of the coming kingdom of God. And so here Jesus is once again speaking about who are those who will be welcomed into heaven, who will be in the the kingdom with him. And the man in the story, the master, is God, God the Father. And God is inviting uh, people to come in, to be welcomed into the kingdom, to to be there in heaven. And and we're told there's a knock at the door telling them the dinner is ready. Now, this isn't the first time that they've heard about this banquet. You didn't just spring one of these. Uh, They planned them well in advance. They had to have reservations. They they had to have a count of people. It's it's like when you get an invite in the mail well in advance of a, a big event that says what? Save the date, right? It's telling you this is coming. Uh, Be prepared, be ready, and then you'll get another invitation as the the event actually arrives. And so when Jesus is telling this, he's saying as we're talking about the coming of the Messiah, the kingdom that is here, he says, this isn't your first invitation. He says, for thousands of years, through the prophets, through the pages of Scripture, you've been getting a save-the-date notice. You've been told this is coming. In fact, back in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we saw where Jesus said, the day has arrived. Remember, he was teaching in a synagogue there in his hometown. And as he got up, he opened the scroll and he read from Isaiah 61.1, which was a messianic passage pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus in Luke 4.21 said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And you would think as Jesus said, this is it. The Messiah is here. The kingdom has come. They would have rejoiced. But remember, their response was to reject him. 
It was to chase him out of the synagogue, to try to push him over to the edge and throw him off a cliff to kill him. And so what happens is, once again, Jesus says, the time is here, the Messiah has come, I am him, I am he, it is time. And Luke 4.18 says, but they rejected him. They all alike began to make excuses. Now, there's an unusual construction in the the Greek text here because what it literally says is with one mind, with one accord, they rejected him. Now, it's not that every single Jew who's ever lived has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. I want you to remember the early church was made up. The first believers were all Jews. And even in our day, we have what we call messianic or completed Jews. These are uh, men and women of Jewish lineage who have recognized Jesus as who God said he was, his son, the promised Messiah, and they've accepted him. So we call them messianic or completed Jews. But what's being pointed to is how the nation of Israel as a whole and these religious leaders who represented the nation and were to point people to the the promised Messiah have rejected him. And when we read that they've done this with one accord, uh, if you flip ahead to Luke chapter 23, you see what this looks like. Because, and we'll cover this in depth when we eventually get to Luke chapter 23, but in Luke 23, 1, it says, Then the whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him. Now, what's happening there is the trial of Jesus. He's been arrested. He's been going through all the various courts. And there in Luke 23, he's before Pilate. And when it says that the whole of them, this is the religious leaders. They were the ones who were accusing him. They brought Christ, Jesus, before Pilate. And as Pilate examines Jesus, Luke 23, 4 tells us, And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. And then Pilate offers to release Jesus. But what happens is the religious leaders once again reject him and they stir the people up. The nation of one accord calls out, as, as you can see down there in Luke 23, uh, um, 23, it says, The gathered people shout out, Crucify! Crucify him. With one accord, the leaders of the nation reject Jesus. And what we find here back in Luke 14, 18, is this rejection of Jesus is illustrated by three examples. It says, the first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me examined. Now, if you've ever bought a piece of land or a house, do you buy it sight unseen? Or when the realtor or uh, person selling the property says, I have this great piece, you say, great, when can I come by and see it? And when I bought a house, I've, I've gone in and, you, you know, you walk through it, you inspect everything, you try the doors, you turn on the water, you're, you're looking for everything that the homeowner may be trying to hide from you. And so you're inspecting it and you hire an inspector to come in and look at it again to see the things that maybe you've missed. As we're reading this, this isn't a situation where a a new piece of property has suddenly come on the market and the guy says, I've got to act on it right now or it's going to be sold. Look and see, it says he already owns it. It's his. He says, I bought this land. It's not going anywhere. It's already his. This is just a lame excuse for him not responding to God's gracious invitation to come to this great supper. This is a person who is possessed by his possessions. He'd rather spend time with the stuff he has. 
He's, he's wrapped up in his little kingdom where he's looking at the stuff he has rather than sitting down with the king of kings and lord of lords at, at the heavenly banquet. So he's distracted. He's, he's not coming to Christ because the things of the world are, are blocking him coming to Christ. Friends, may I remind you that there are only two things that last for all eternity? The word of God and the eternal souls of men and women. There are only two things that last for all eternity. The word of God and the eternal souls of people. If you were here in some of the previous sermons, you'll remember we've walked through some of the end time events. And and we saw how God is going to destroy the heavens and the earth that we know today. They're corrupted. And after the great white throne judgment, he's going to burn these up and recreate the, the new earth and the new heavens free from sin. Every single thing in this world will be lost. The only things that will last are the things that were done to serve the Lord and the souls of people. And so as you think in terms of of what it is that you're investing in, if it's anything other than those two things, what you're working for one day is going to be lost. And if you have not come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you too will be lost one day. Again, we saw in a previous sermon, and if you've missed those messages, they're online on our website at waysidechapel.org. We saw that there's a great white throne judgment where it says those who have rejected Jesus will be rejected by him. And they will be sent to a place called the lake of fire, what we call hell. You'll spend all eternity separated from God. But you don't have to be separated from God. Because he sent his son Jesus to die for you and me. To pay the penalty of death we owed for our sins. As we're reading this passage, and it it talks about purchasing the land here. And again, when we get to verse 19, and it talks about purchasing the oxen, there's a a Greek word that's used, it's agorazo. And this word agorazo is found all throughout the scripture to talk about buying something. It's used in Ephesians 3, 7 to talk about how Jesus Christ bought us, how he redeemed us. That's the word. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So this word means to buy, to purchase off the market. And it can be illustrated this way. If you were uh, walking through a farmer's market and you had a basket and you came to a stand and you saw something you liked and uh, you asked the price and you bought it and stuck it in your basket, you agorazoed it. You purchased it. It's now yours. It belongs to you. And you can take and walk along and continue shopping, and what is yours, you, you have purchased. Now, there's, uh, when it comes to us and, and God purchasing us, this same Greek word is used in 1 Corinthians 6.20. There it says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now, there's another Greek word, ek agorazo. It's the same root word, but you add the preposition ek or ex to it, which literally means out of. So when you put this prefix with this word, what it means now is to buy out of the market. Now, what does that mean? So remember, you're walking along, you have this item in your basket that you bought, and as you're shopping, let's say somebody else walks up to you and they see it and they go, wow, I've been looking for that. You say, yeah, I I bought it down there. And they say, I know I went there. And they said, you got the last one. And I, I really, really need that. Could I buy it from you? Now, you bought it. It's yours. And you say, no, I I wanted it. I bought it. Now, if the person says, well, I'll give you five times what you paid for it, you might look at it and go, hmm, do I I really need that? 
Now, if you ekagorazoed it, what it literally means is you bought it out of the market and it's never again for sale. And so when it comes to us, God doesn't just buy us. He doesn't just redeem us, but he takes us literally out of the market. It was used to speak of a slave who had been purchased and set free. And so when it comes to us, Jesus bought our salvation. He set us free from the penalty of death. And he said, we are never again to lose our salvation. You can read all throughout the Bible. It tells you in John 10, 28 through 29, how uh, Jesus Christ's nail-scarred hands, it says we've been placed in them. And it says Jesus has closed his hand around us. And God the Father has closed his hand around. And he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. You read John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word believes him who sent me has passed out of death and into life. It's a one way. Uh, it's an aorist form. You've, you are no longer lost. You are saved. You read Romans 8, 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as you read through chapter 8 of Romans, you get all the way to the end, and it tells you there in verses 38 and 39, Paul says, for I am convinced. He didn't say, hmm, I think this might. He says, I know this is a fact. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor height nor depth nor any created thing, that's you and I, he says, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We have been bought off the market. This is what it's... Uh, this word is found in Galatians 3.13 where it says, Christ redeemed us, ek agarazo, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus paid the penalty of death, buying you and me. And he's taken us off the market. He set us free when we come to faith in Jesus and receive his great gift of new life, never again to be sold. And so he says, don't let your possessions, don't let the world, don't let your sin uh, try to draw you back. You've been set free from these things. In Luke 14, 19, the second one says, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Now this word try them out means to test or examine. And again, nobody would ever do what this guy is saying. You wouldn't go and, and buy a car sight unseen without driving it, right? You want to start it up, see if it moves. You want to try the brakes, check the steering. And here it says he's bought a yoke of oxen. Now, a yoke of oxen is where you had two uh, oxen that were put together in a yoke. And it was very important to see if these two animals would work together because if they were, one was stronger than the other, you'd be pulled all over. If they, they couldn't get along, you would, you would have a terrible pair. So nobody would ever buy a yoke of oxen without first testing them, trying them out on the plow first. And this guy didn't just buy two. It says he bought ten. He bought five pair. This is a very significant investment. It would be uh, just like you going out and buying an entire fleet of tractors. And again, you wouldn't do that without starting them up, without looking at the maintenance records, without checking to see what is the condition. So this is another lame excuse who, just like the previous man, he's preoccupied with his personal possessions. But this time it's his business dealings that are getting in the way of, of coming to Jesus and walking with him. As you've read through the Bible, maybe you've found a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. Remember Paul's story? Was he always named Paul? No. He used to be Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee. He was one of the religious leaders like we're reading about today. And you remember Saul hated Jesus. 
And he hated the people who had come to Christ, the early church. And Saul was a guy who was uh, one of these up and to the right people. He was doing all the things within the system to, to move up the chain. And Paul was on the fast track to the top. And one of the things he was doing in the book of Acts, you read how he was on the way to Damascus to persecute the church. He was arresting Christians. He was bringing them back to Jerusalem to be tried. And he was there when the first martyr, Stephen, happened where he was killed. And so Paul was a guy who hated Jesus and hated those who followed Christ. And you remember what happened is while he was on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him in a bright light, literally knocking Paul off his high horse. And as he, he looks up into this bright light, he, he hears this, this voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. And Saul became a believer. He encountered the resurrected Lord and he became a Christian. And he became a follower of Christ and everything changed in Saul's life from his name to Paul to everything that he thought was important. You remember he, he wrote about how all the things of the world that he had been trusting in and pursuing he counted as rubbish. It's a very graphic word. It literally means human excrement. And he says, I looked at everything that I, I did with my life and that's what I produced with my body. And he says it was wretched, it was worthless. And he quit pursuing the things of the world, and in turn he pursued Christ. And it's why he wrote in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I want you to think about your life this morning, and how you would fill in the blanks in that statement. For me to live is, and to die is what? Think about what you're pursuing in life. If it's the things of the world instead of Jesus Christ, then maybe what you would write there is, for me to live is money. And to die is to leave it all behind. For me to live is fame. And to die is to be quickly forgotten. For to me to live is power and influence. And to die is to lose both. For me to live is possessions. And to die is to depart with nothing in my hands. Friends, if what you're pursuing in the world are the things of the world, remember, they're all going to burn up one day. They're going to be lost. They do not last. And when you leave this world, you will be lost as well. Because there is, if you reject Jesus as your Savior, the Bible says you will be rejected as well. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So if you're trusting in the works that you do or the way that you live your life or how many times you come to church, it says you're lost. You have to come to faith in Jesus as your Savior. In Luke 14, 20, we're told, and another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. Now, on the surface, this looks like a great uh, thing to say, right? I mean, he's saying, I need to make my family a priority. I'd, I'd really love to come, but I've, I've got to put my family first. Do you know that God cares about your family too? In fact, he cares about your family more than you do. And early on, as God was setting up the Levitical law, he talked about making family a priority. Now, next Sunday, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about, we're going to see where Jesus tells us to hate our family. And we're going to talk about what does that mean uh, to hate and love. And we're going to see it doesn't mean that you hate them in the world's way. It means that our love for God is so great that it makes our love for our family look like hate in comparison. There's a spoiler alert for next week. 
But as you look at this, it's not that God says uh, your family's not important. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 5, God set out in his law. He said, when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and he shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. And in the New Testament, God says something similar. In Titus 2.5 and 1 Timothy 3.5, he says, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? If you're somebody who's sacrificing your family to serve all the other families in a church, there's something wrong, and we need to talk. But that's usually not the problem with us. What many of us do, I talk to people all the time who say, you know, Roger, I love coming to church. I, 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 I just need to clear church off my calendar because I don't have any time with my family, and I, and I need to make them a priority. And, and I ask them, I say, okay, well, tell me about your calendar. What's it filled with? And often I'll hear uh, sports, sleeping, scouts, serving on a committee, on and on the list goes. And what we do is we say, well, I've got to cut God out before uh, I cut any of those other things out. Now, listen very clearly to this. I'm not telling you that if you miss a Sunday, you're going to burn in hell. Okay? I miss some Sundays, too. The Bible, remember, Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay, we talked about that in a previous message. But you have to look at the priorities and where it is. And what we often do is we say to God, you get the leftovers rather than what's first in our life. And as you look in terms of of cutting out uh, things like your relationship with God and walking with him and coming to church to spend time with your family, what I want to tell you is you're you're not going to burn up if you miss a Sunday or two, but what will happen if you continue to miss fellowshipping with other believers is your passion for God is going to burn down and eventually go out. That's why the Bible tells us in Hebrews 10.25 not to forsake fellowshipping together as is the habit of some. It tells us we are to gather together, encouraging one another. It says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, we come to church to be encouraged, to be equipped, to be strengthened, to hear the word of God taught. So when somebody at school or work or even your family begins to ridicule you for your faith, you're able to say, well, this is what I believe, and this is why I know these things. And you're equipped to be able to have a conversation with somebody. If you want to have a strong family life, the Word of God is the foundation that tells you how to have a home that honors God. It tells you all kinds of things in there. Ladies, if if you want your husband to be a good husband, it tells us in, in God's Word, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Jesus died for the church. Men, you're to sacrificially live for your wives. It tells us men live with your wives in an understanding manner. That word literally means according to knowledge. It means we go to school on our families. So, And it has plenty to say to kids and ladies. It it tells children to honor their father and mother. It tells us as parents not to exasperate our children. It says, wives, by your chaste and respectful behavior, live in such a way that you might be able to win your husbands over without a word. And so if you're saying, "I, I want to put my family first, well, then come here to church and get equipped and learn and, and, and learn what a foundation looks like so you can, you can have a strong home life. 
and, it, and it'll, it'll equip and encourage you. Just look around the room. You're not alone. Sometimes you're at work or school and you think you're the only one who believes what you believe, but look around the room. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And we're here to support you and pray for you and when hard times hit, to come alongside and walk with you. And so this is why we gather together encouraging one another. Now, as we're talking about coming to church, I want, you, I want to make sure you understand something very clearly here. This is not saying you come to church and that's how you're saved. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember I, I shared a quote from Corey Ten Boom's father. And he said, just because a mouse is in a cookie jar doesn't make it a cookie. And I told you, just because you're in church, it doesn't make you a Christian, Right? Being here doesn't make you a believer. But what it does is it lets you hear the word of God. It lets you have questions answered. It lets you begin to, to really see is Jesus who he said he was. But having head knowledge alone is not enough. Remember, all the religious leaders around the table had all the head knowledge in the world. They had memorized the law of God. But they rejected the one that the law pointed to, Jesus Christ. And because of that, Jesus said, you will be rejected Knowing is not enough. It has to travel the 18 inches to your heart where you accept and receive him. John 1.12 tells us, but as many as believed him, as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You have to receive Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Those in our passage were not doing it. They were rejecting him. And as they did so, Luke 14, 21 tells us, and the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry. And he said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Do you remember who these guys are? The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Last week we talked about the diseased man who had dropsy. And the flawed theology of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees said if you were poor, if you were sick or diseased, it was God's judgment on you that you had been rejected by God. You were such a wicked sinner, he was judging you. But that's bad theology. That's not what God says. There are times there are consequences for our sin where those things may happen. But you being poor or sick or, or other things doesn't mean God has rejected you. Paul had a thorn in his flesh that he prayed for God to remove three times. God didn't heal him of his illness. And, and as Jesus healed this man with dropsy, remember Jesus sent him away, and the Pharisees were all excited because they're like, get that sinner out of here. That guy doesn't belong among us. But in this parable, what Jesus is saying is, when you rejected me, God opened the door and he welcomed in those that you said were not welcome. The poor, the crippled, the sick, the lame. He said, they have a place in the kingdom. They will be there at the table with me. And as you're sitting here this morning at Wayside Chapel, there, there are no perfect people here. From the pastor in the pulpit to the people in the pews, or those who are out at Stone Oak and sitting in the seats there, there are none of us who are perfect. The Bible is very clear in Romans 3.10. It says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And because of that, we have a big problem. That problem is found in Romans 6.23, where it says the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn. 
And if you think you can earn your way to God by being good enough, what he says is what you've earned by how you live your life because you're a sinner is the penalty of death. And again, as we talked about in a previous message, that, that second death is what it's referring to there because those who are at the great white throne judgment have died physically the first death and then they are going to be separated from God for all eternity the second death. And he says, you owe a penalty of death. And if you do not allow Jesus to be the one to pay the penalty in your place, you get to pay it yourself. That's why Romans 6.23 goes on to say, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you're here this morning and you're saying, but Roger, you don't know me. I've made a mess in my life. I'm, I'm a wretched sinner. I've got all kinds of bad things going on in my world that, that if you knew who I was, you would turn away from me. No, I probably wouldn't. I've, I've seen a lot. But even if we as people would turn away from you, do you know something? God will never. Because what God says, and he knows everything about you, every sin you've ever committed, he says in Romans 5, 8, that he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet a sinner, Christ died for us. He went to the cross and he spread his arms wide and he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross so his blood could be shed to wash away your sins and mine. And his arms are still open wide this morning to welcome you home. He says in the parable, go out and, and tell these, quote, wicked sinners, these, these downcast, outcasts. You know, if you went into the streets of San Antonio today, who would you find? The homeless, the prostitutes, the drug dealers, those that we said, oh, those are really bad people. And what Jesus says is, welcome them in. Bring them into the kingdom. They're welcome here. The religious leader said God didn't want them in his kingdom. And Jesus says, no, God has a place at the table for them. And in Luke 19.10, he tells us that again. It says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so he goes out and he invites them to come into the kingdom. Now Luke 14.22 through 23 goes on to say, and the slave said, master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. When he says go outside of the city, what he's saying is go outside of the nation. The Jews were saying these, these diseased Jews, well, okay, maybe they're going to get in. But now what Jesus is talking about are the Gentiles. He says go outside of the city, outside of the nation. Go get the Samaritans. Go get the Gentiles. Bring them into the kingdom. When the religious leaders in the nation of Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, it, it put in motion the rest of God's plan to welcome those of us who are, are Gentile, that means non-Jewish by birth, into the kingdom. You can turn over to Romans chapter 11 to see what this is talking about. Because in Romans eleven seventeen through 20, it, it gives the image of an olive tree, and the olive tree represents the nation of Israel. And he's going to talk about how some branches are broken off, those being the Jews, and then he's going to talk about how some wild branches are grafted in, the Gentiles. This is what a Ro Romans eleven seventeen through 20 says. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive, a Gentile, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. 
They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do you see how we're welcomed into the kingdom? By our faith. Now let me say something here because there is some bad theology out there called replacement theology. And what replacement theology says is the church, which is made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, has replaced the nation of Israel. That God is done with the Jews because they with one accord rejected him. God has said, you're gone, and all the promises, all the covenants to Abraham, the Davidic promises, on and on, those now are transferred to the church. That is not what the scriptures teach. In fact, let's keep reading here in Romans 11. Look down at Romans 11:23 through 27. It says, and they also, who is the they? Jews. And the Jews also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature wild olive trees and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more shall those who are the natural branches be grafted in uh, to their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening that has happened to Israel, why was Israel hardened? Here it is. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You see, God is not done with Israel. But the Jews have to come to faith in the promised Messiah. If they reject Jesus as the Messiah, they are lost. They are not saved because of their birth, their lineage. Remember, Jesus has already covered that earlier in Luke. He said, by nature of being sons of Abraham or having the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant, you're not saved. He says, you're not saved by keeping the law. He says, you're saved by grace. You're saved through a gracious invitation where Jesus invites you to come based upon what he did for us on the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. The gospel message is what God's son did as he died for us. Read Romans chapter 1. It tells us that the gospel was given to the Jew first and then the Gentile. It says it's the power of salvation for all of us. And so God has given this gracious invitation to the last, to, to his, his great and coming supper, not just in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom we talked about last uh, couple of messages, but also the eternal kingdom of heaven. Now, again, we have a problem. If we do not receive that gift, it says we will not be received in heaven. Let me illustrate it uh, with this example from U.S. history. During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, there was a postal clerk by the name of George Wilson. George Wilson worked for the post office on a train, and he knew when federal payrolls would come and go on the train. And he concocted a plan to rob one of these payrolls. And uh, the day came, and he committed the robbery, and in the course of it, something went wrong in his plan, and he ended up having to kill a guard. So he committed murder, and this uh, George Wilson was captured. He underwent trial. He was found guilty of capital murder. And he was sentenced to death to be hanged at the time. Now, there was a movement against the death penalty. They didn't want to see him killed. And they said, you know, he made a tragic uh, mistake, but it was the first and only crime he's ever committed. So they appealed to President 
uh, Andrew Jackson to uh, issue a presidential pardon. And eventually, President Jackson intervened, but to everyone's surprise, Wilson rejected the presidential pardon. Now, this had never happened before. The, the pardon said you were not guilty of, you, you, your, your crime had been expunged, you, you may have been guilty, but the, everything was gone and you were set free as if it had never happened. But Wilson said, I will not accept this, this pardon. So the Supreme Court was asked to rule on whether someone could indeed refuse a presidential pardon. And Chief Justice Marshall wrote this opinion for the court's decision. He said, a pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. Now, here's the key. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in the court to force it on him. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do this, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. And he was hanged for his crimes. And in the parable we're reading today, God says, I have issued a pardon. I've given you a gracious invitation to come. To come into the kingdom, not based upon anything you did. It was based entirely upon what Jesus Christ did when he went to the cross and he died for us. And he said, that gift is available to you. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. But if you reject that, if you say, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to live a life good enough to get to God, I'm going to go to church enough, I'm going to do on and on, God says, you're lost. You cannot get to me that way. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the question this morning is, what have you done with God's gracious invitation to the Great Supper? Have you humbled yourself, acknowledging that you're a sinner? That means you've made mistakes in your life, whether you've told a lie, taken a cookie out of the pantry, disobeyed your, your parent. Whatever it is you've done, we're all sinners. And as as a sinner, we owe a penalty of death. And Jesus said, I went to the cross and I paid that penalty for you. It's what we're going to remember now as we come to the communion table. As we come to the communion table, it is a reminder to us of God's great gift to us, of how he purchased us, how he agorazoed us, he bought us, how he ekagorazoed, how he took us off the slave market once and for all, how he paid the price shedding his blood to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And he says to you and me today, the offer is there. The invitation is out. And today is the day where you can receive it. Today is the day where you can accept Jesus as your Savior. And if you've never come to a point in your life where you realize that without Christ you're lost, and today you understand what the gospel is, that Jesus came and he gave his life to wash away your sins, and you're ready to receive that. In a moment, the elements are going to be passed. What you're going to see is a a piece of bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ. And so as this is passed by, if you're ready to receive Jesus as your Savior, you can reach out and take this. And you can say to God, God, today I'm accepting your son Jesus to be my Savior. 
And then you're going to see a cup that is passed, a cup representing the blood of Jesus. And take that as well and hold it and say, Jesus, I recognize that I need your blood to wash away my sins. I'm a sinner. And today I accept your death in my place. And if you do those things, the Bible says you will be saved. Remember Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're a man, a woman, a boy or girl who's already received Jesus as your Savior, we welcome you to this table. You don't have to be a member of Wayside, just a member of the family of God. So as the elements are passed, take and hold the bread and the cup. We'll take them all together. Use this time to examine your life. If you have any sins that you've not yet confessed, use this time to tell God uh, you're sorry, ask for his forgiveness, and we'll take the elements together in a moment. Will you serve us, please? In John 3:16, we're told, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have the gift of eternal life. This bread represents the bread of life, Jesus Christ, the one who was given for you and me to pay the penalty of death in our place, eat it in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup. It's grape juice, but it represents something so precious. The precious blood of the lamb. The one that John the Baptist pointed to when he said in John 1.29, as he saw Jesus Christ coming, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness for sin. Jesus shed his blood so that you and I could have our sins washed away. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. You join me as we pray, please. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. Love that was demonstrated as you, Jesus, went to the cross, giving your life so that you could give to us the gift of eternal life. Father, as those who are recipients of your grace, as those who have responded to your gracious invitation to come into the family, to be a part of the kingdom, may we be like your servant that we see in this passage who went out into the roads and the byways and compelled others to come. Would we who are messengers of grace, having received it ourselves, go and share that good news with others? Lord, as we leave here today, Would we go out and share the good news of who Jesus is, the promised Messiah, the one who has come, the one who paid the penalty, who closed the account. May we share the good news of the Lord of life with others who we come in contact with in our life. Father, thank you for your gift of new and eternal life. Help us to live in a way that is worthy of who you are, not because we earn our way to you, but as a responsive love for who you are and the love you showed to us. We pray these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are going to be prayer leaders here at the front afterwards. If you have a need, we'd love to pray with you. We're going to stand now and sing this closing song of worship. Will you join us, please?